Good morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. So glad to be with you on uh, this morning. For those of you I've not met before, I'm Eric Redmond, and I'm glad to be a guest here both from Calvary Memorial Church and from Moody Bible Institute. Thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for your kind invitation um, in inviting me to come here. Uh, it's always good to be at a place where I also have friends, although some of my friends are not here this morning. Ben and Rachel Wilson are on travel for Ben's uh, sabbatical, and Eileen, Jeff's wife, who was one of my students uh, ages ago at another school at which I taught. She's not here uh, this morning. I hope I didn't offend them and make them both go away uh, here. Um, um, but it's good to see others that I know. Hannah was good to see you this morning, and I understand uh, that one of my uh, friends, children, who's also my friend or child is here this morning, uh, Andrew, who's over at Northwestern. Andrew, I know you're out there somewhere, but Andrew hails from uh, home in Maryland. Also um, glad that you are here this morning and grateful for all of you who are here to hear the word of God. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to sing to our great God and Savior. Let me um, start with a word of prayer. Father, now would you grant us your grace um, to hear you speak. And would you speak in power despite our frailties to both preach and to hear. Would your spirit um, commend to us all that is pleasing in your sight. Would you do this so that the body of EBF can be built up and that they can be zealous, bold, courageous witnesses of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for all who are in their spheres of influence? Would you encourage them today, each person that is here? May our hope be more sure. Bless God now that I can make your word clear. May the gospel and all of his implications come forth with power. And would you do all of this for your great name's sake around Evanston and all of Chicagoland and in places around the world where there are billions who have yet to ever hear the name of Jesus. So now God, meet uh, with us in a great way through your word. And we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wednesdays and Thursdays of each week are particularly long days for me, longer than the other work days of the week. Although I love my job, I am very glad when work is over and I can hurry home to where I will enjoy time with Pam, my wife, in the peace and safety of my home and time uh, with her that can soothe away the stresses of my day. So I find myself moving quickly to get from my desk to Union Station or over to Ogilvy one day a week so that I might grab a train and get out of the city back to the western suburbs. Wednesday I also work at the church in the evening before both Pam and I can call it quits for that day. Last Wednesday, my routine had a very small delay in it as I encountered a man in need just before entering the train station. 
Now, it's not the first time that I have run into someone in need on my walk to or from the train station. That happens daily in the city, as those of you who work in the city are aware. Neither is stopping to help someone something new for me, for I do what I can, when I can, whenever I have amounts of money on me that I can sacrifice. But this day was different, for I was really in a hurry to get a train by a certain time, and I was intending to grab a snack before stepping onto the train in case the meal at church was something that I did not like to eat. And I actually knew this time that I had cash with me, for I had received some with a transaction at a store on the weekend. So I decided that this was not the day to help the man that I was passing who held a sign that simply said, I'm hungry. The instant I passed this man, I knew more was at stake than his current hunger or my potential hunger at church. At stake was the very safety and happiness that I had hoped to experience in my home and all of you hoped to experience in your dorm or in your home also. For at stake was the sanctity of that man's life and mine or the sacredness of that man's life and mine, of whether or not God intends the safety and happiness of all persons in this world. When we turn to Genesis 9, we have just left our story of the flood. The world now could pose a precarious situation for Noah and his sons. There are no other people on the earth, and land might not provide food as before. Both Cain and Lamech in chapter 4, and probably others also by now, have shown that they are willing to take the lives of others. Moreover, humankind could become so sinful in God's sight that God could bring another universal flood judgment. Reading this story, one could wonder if it was even safe to bring children into that world, to have Noah bring his three sons and their families into that post-Eden, post-flood world. Yet as this narrative will reveal, the Lord makes provisions for man to enjoy God and all that God has provided, even with all of the potential hazards in the fallen world. God makes five provisions so that all human life on earth might be upheld as sacred in the eyes of all humankind. Here they are. First, he blesses all of life. In verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God blessed Noah and his sons. As the Genesis narrative continues, Noah and his sons will become the new family from which all peoples of the earth will come. Thus the blessing of God, his common grace, and his approval of life itself rest upon all people regardless of their relationship to Christ. This is how anyone does anything productive or good in this world. 
The blessing phrase in this verse reaches backwards to the original creation with the Lord's words of blessing upon all that he has made. The phrase also reaches forward to the rest of the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis as God pronounces blessings upon Abraham and upon Isaac and then upon Jacob and his sons. As much as God judged the pre-flood world in order to address its sinfulness, the Genesis writer also intends to show that God is one who is happy and is good and intends for life to be happy and good, bountiful and pleasurable and safe on the earth. God intends for his creation to be a place of blessing for all persons. He finds value in all that he has made, which leads us into the second thing. Second, God encourages family life. At the end of verse 1, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And down in verse 7, there is an inclusio, there is a bookend in which it says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Be fruitful and multiply harkens back to the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, verses 28 through 30. After the flood, God still intends for men and women to enjoy one another in the establishment of families and for those families to fill the earth as his representatives. In this way, the knowledge of God, the creator, would be spread throughout the earth. The intention is for each member of our families to be an evangelistic instrument, a tool revealing the greatness of the God who made and blessed us. God-fearing people and family both offer and demonstrate life as something to be valued. Now, just as the phrase of blessing goes back to the creation and points forward to the blessing of the patriarchs, so too the phrase concerning being fruitful and multiplying and increasing goes back to the command to Adam and Eve, the cultural mandate, as just said, but it also looks forward to the offspring of Noah, especially of Seth, as he is the line from which Abraham will come. Rightly, Genesis scholar Kenneth Matthews notes that God's blessing comes with the increase of children upon the earth, showing that the effects of sin had not robbed the new world of hope. Hope rests in each successive generation, having children and families and living their lives before God. Sometimes it can be difficult to see God blessing all of life when we look at the state of so many children around the world. Yet birthing children is the way in which we get adults on the earth, and the human race continues. After the Lord spares Noah, he does not start putting adults into the world from the vegetation of the animals. He doesn't reach into a tree and say, well, you know, that children thing is too hard. Here, let's just pop some adults out. And he doesn't bring them out of animals like in some old Bugs Bunny cartoon. Had he done that, the earth would have missed the inherent blessing the creator put inside of marriage to bless people and to show that he intends for life to be happy and safe, parenthetical euphemism. God still uses the process of bringing children into the world to bring people into the world and to create families. 
how out of order it is to live in a world in which, first, people question bringing children into the world, second, marriage, the natural and God-ordained place for creating children, often is discouraged and rejected, and third, marriage and family themselves often are places of abuse rather than places of peace. They do not show these things, do not show his blessings or follow his intentions for mankind. God is not pleased with the abuser or the abuse you have experienced, if that is you. It is not supposed to be that way. Life is valuable to God, and family should show the sacredness of all of life. Third, God elevates man over animal and plant life. He elevates man over, ele over animal and plant life. Whereas it is common for people of modern culture to view animal life almost as significant as human life, maybe even for some more significant than human life. This is not what the Lord decrees in the creation or after the flood. He says in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with this life that is its blood. Saving and worshiping animals at the expense of man's well-being or an emphasis on being green to the point that human welfare is jeopardized is not the Lord's intention. Such ideas actually devalue human life. The intent of limiting eating meat, by the way, with blood remaining in it, has nothing to do with the merits of bloodless food to one's health or a problem with blood as a contaminant. Instead, when animal life is set apart as sacred, it serves as a visual reminder that blood gives life. Shedding the blood of a person then would not be so easy. The intent of such laws and the judgment for breaking them have been fulfilled in the dawning of the messianic era, the entrance of Jesus into the world and his death, his blood for sin. And Jesus is the one who declares all foods clean in Mark 7. And Paul reiterates it in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when everything is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Some segments of our society care more for koala bears being lost in fires in Australia than for people living in zones of gunfire daily. Yes, Proverbs 12.10 also tells us, quote, a righteous man has regard for his beast. So my statement about koala bears that just shook some of you up and made you say, oh, how could he say that? So my statement about koala bears does not intend to denigrate care for animals. I own three dogs. Two standard poodles, one whatever kind of other poodle that other one is called down there. And he's 16 years old and blind and has arthritis, and we care for him just like the other ones. So it's not meant to denigrate anything about the animals or say we shouldn't care about animals. Instead, it is to put into place the right understanding of the sacredness of life in a biblical vision for humanity. Animals are not made in the image of God. People are. And that brings us to the fourth point and the lengthiest portion of this sermon. The fourth thing God does is he charges man to protect human life. 
Verses 5 and 6, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Three items in the text are of note in verses 5 through 6. First, God establishes the law against murder, the individual taking of a life by another person with intention and holds man accountable to him for murder. It's reckoning in the ESV text as I'm reading it. That's, That's the English word supplied for the Hebrew word that means to exact. And from man in the ESV is actually, literally, it would be from the hand of man in Hebrew. So I will require a reckoning from the hand of man. We are the ones, humankind, whose hands are responsible for those who murder. The law is assumed to be universal by the time of Genesis 4, 10 through 12. For the law condemns Cain for the blood of his brother Abel. Again, Also pointing forward as much as it points backwards, the Lord mandates law against murder in Israel in the Ten Commandments, just like backwards it had already been seen with Cain and Abel. And then he distinguishes between murder and manslaughter and between the slaughter of animals and the killing of people. As the lawgiver, murder of another first is a crime against God. God says, I will require a reckoning. He says it twice in there in the passage. God is the one most offended by murder, for all people are his creation and are under his authority as the one who is the owner of all things life. Life is precious to God. It is sacred to God, even more sacred than it is to any one of us. Human life is so sacred that God commanded the ancient Israelites to stone any beast who took the life of a human being. No one in that society could say, oh, well, that was just a natural occurrence for an animal to take the life of a person. That would have diminished our worth. Instead, in order to show how valuable life and how much is and how much more worth we have than animals, we could hold animals accountable for the killing of people without ourselves being held accountable for making animals our food. Second, God gives mankind the responsibility and authority to take the life of one who murders another. That is, the good God who blesses his creation and mankind institutes capital punishment for the capital crime of another, murder. The intent of this law is to keep life sanctified. For if one person has the right to get away with murder, then anyone can get away with murder. If anyone can get away with murder, anyone can be murdered at any time. Thus, life would not be worth anything. 
to show that life is worth something and to keep murderers from running rampant, the Lord established capital punishment. And this was not limited to an Old Testament ancient Near Eastern context, but it was a stipulation throughout redemptive history repeated again in Joshua 20 with the cities of refuge, brought up again in Romans 13 when, it's, when we speak of submitting to governing authorities. Now, while Romans 13 provides acknowledgement of the right of a government to exact capitalist punishment and does not prescribe such, it still recognizes its establishment as a tool to address evil in society. Now, I'm not here this morning to debate the merits or injustices of the current practices of capital punishment in the U.S. or around the world. All you people over at Northwestern or wherever you are in political silence, you would eat my lunch on that one. I'm not even going to try to do that in this setting. I know that the statistics bear out that it does not reduce crime in a modern context, which we should not find surprising, by the way, in a world that does not believe that man is accountable to God for wrongdoing, in a world that is growing more evil. I also know about the great racial disparities in sentencing in America, which is a question of legal representation and adjudication and not of the law of capital punishment itself. But suffice it to say in this message that God's intention in instituting capital punishment for the capital crime of taking the life of another was to remove permanently from society those who did not deem everyone else's life as sacred. I question whether we uphold the true value of life when an intentional life taker is left to roam even in a supermax cell. The very distinction between manslaughter and murder and their different accountabilities are God's way of reiterating the sanctity of life of the victim, of the criminal, and of one who has an accident. Third, the Imago Dei, the image of God in man, stands as a reason for the necessity for capital punishment image in here is not referring to man, capital M, meaning man and woman, representing the exact physical shape of God. Instead, the image of God in man is man's unique resemblance to God in body and soul and unique stewardship from God as his representatives on earth, both as one who has self-awareness and self-preservation. That was a big definition, so let me go back and repeat it again. The image of God in man is man's unique resemblance to God in body and soul. I can say humankind's unique resemblance to man in body and soul, and unique stewardship from God as his representative on earth, both as one who has self-awareness and self-preservation. It is from here that we gain our concept of human dignity. And it was great to hear human dignity mentioned in our prayers this morning, in our readings uh, this morning, in our introductions this morning. It's from here that we gain that initial concept. Every person has inherent worth because we each are made to resemble and represent God. 
It is worth noting that all three of these items transcend cultural limitations. All people from every culture are accountable to their maker. All creatures in all cultures must have recourse to prevent rampant murder, and all cultures are made of people who bear the image of God. Sometimes it can be difficult to see that treating all people with dignity matters. But remembering what it is like to feel undignified helps us in treating all people with dignity. Think with me for a moment. Think of how undignified you felt under the care of an overbearing parent or coach, or in comparison to your prettier or smarter sibling or cousin or child of your parent's best friend always being compared. So-and-so got, got a 4.8 this semester. How come you only got a 4.3? You remember how all that went? Think of how humiliating living in the broken middle-class home felt and then take away the middle-class part. Think of the uncertainty you felt in an alcoholic or abusive home and how you wished for someone to see your family's need for help. That wish was a silent cry for others to recognize that you had human dignity, that your family had human dignity. Or maybe think of how coming from a Christian home didn't shield you from mistreatment as you tried to live as your parents prescribed while your friends from Christian homes were not doing the same. Just take away the Christian part of that mistreatment. It is mistreatment because your dignity as a person was being trumped by your friends despising of the Christian faith. You wanted them to see you as a person who should not have been the object of ridicule. Everybody else wants that too. Dignity extends beyond the womb, as already said here today. It extends to the Me Too movement and their cause and what made their cause arise. It extends to the Black Lives Matter movement and what made their cause arise. That does not give sanction to everything that goes on in either one of those movements. It only recognizes that they have put their finger on an issue of dignity, which makes a gospel opportunity for us, by the way. Dignity is a key issue with every unprocessed rape kit, every child in a foster care system in need of a home, every person over 50 who should be considered a value member of a company even though a senior citizen in the eyes of society. Every Middle Easterner wrongly ethnically profiled. Dignity, the image of God in humans, is at stake in our treatment of every student who underperforms academically in school. Every person standing in court who cannot afford legal counsel but needs just legal representation and due process just as much as those with lawyers on retainer. It is an issue for every person trying to cross our borders illegally, every refugee risking a life in a raft to get to a country that is safe, and every person that holds a sign up that says, I'm hungry. Do we wonder why it is that the scriptures warn us against mistreatment of the poor? Just listen to these four Proverbs. Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, he who is generous to the needy honors him. 17.5 says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. 
21.13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out, not be heard. And 22.2 says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The issue here in these Proverbs is that in the sight of the one who makes people, the maker, the creator, the one who is Lord of all, there is no difference in our worth. Rich and poor come before him in the same way. It is insulting to God to think that the impartial creator inherently made one person with less dignity than another and or that somehow he will be pleased if we treat those with means and status better than we treat those without means and status. Moreover, both rich and poor alike are sinful and worthy of death in the eyes of the creator. What I am trying to do here now is give a Christian vision of the sacredness of all of life. No rich person merits salvation and no poor person has a preferential option toward God simply by being poor. Every person who cannot afford health care costs still is worthy of care and in need of enough care to give them good health. And such sanctifying of life of the pure fuels works like doctors without borders, OM and mercy ship, and mobile dental in Chicagoland. We deny the sanctifying of life if we mistreat those God has made, whether they are poor or rich. So every white supremacist is created by God with dignity, even if they deny that very dignity with their wretched anti-Semitism and their hatred of people of color. To say otherwise is to not deny that all of life is sacred. The supremacist's life does not become a life of dignity when he or she repents from their hatred and refusal to love their neighbors as themselves. They have dignity, although fallen, just like the rest of us have dignity, although fallen. Dignity is what makes us bioethically cautious when it comes to looking at designing seemingly perfect children and cloning humans. In order to sanctify life, we must say that Every person has dignity from conception to death and all of life in between. We need to say what we learned as children back in Whoville. A person is a person, no matter how small. When the 2019 statistics on murder rates in Chicago showed a decline, it was a good sign. It was good in that there was less cheapening of life, even if there was not necessarily a greater gaining of the value of life. We are thankful for every life spared, for one less family member who does not need to stand graveside for a senseless act of violence, for each student who does not lose a classmate to a child who comes back into a school with the intent to gun down part of the school population. On the one hand, we say to ourselves, if we could just be honest, there is some hope for good in this world, and we are not as bad off as we could be. And then on the other hand, if we're going to be honest, some of us also say to ourselves, I'm glad I live and work outside the city. Then, as we're congratulating ourselves 
for being appointed into the suburbs. Like the loudest of thunder interrupting the night air, one murder takes place in uptown, and then you begin to wonder if the threats to happiness and safety will make their way to Evanston and to Skokie and to Mount Pleasant. Suddenly, no place seems to be free from crime and evil, and we are tempted to question if happiness and safety for all can be had in this present world. Despite the precarious nature of peace and pervasiveness of wickedness, God has prescribed a means for us to enjoy both safety and happiness in this world. That is a way that we might sanctify all of life. Such sacredness includes providing a human means to stop people from diminishing life in a society through murder or any other means. Such sacredness also includes giving a hungry person some food. Fifth, and almost done. The fifth thing God does so that all of life can be sacred in the fallen world is this. He makes a covenant with a sign to delay his judgment on sinful life. And I won't go back and read all the verses. You're very familiar with that section. The establishment of the covenant is mentioned seven times in this passage from verse 8 on. Excuse me. Therefore, the focus of the post-flood stipulations is on the covenant. It takes up the greatest portion of the passage, so it is the subject. The covenants are simply promissory agreements with stipulations between the covenant participants. However, this here is a unilateral covenant, a one-way covenant, rather than a bilateral covenant. God places all of the stipulations on himself and none on Noah and his sons. Man only has to enjoy this covenant promise. The covenant is for all mankind and for the earth itself we see here. It promises that there will not be another flood to judge the earth. It comes with the sign of the rainbow. It is a covenant that lasts for as long as there is an earth, it says down in verse 16. So Old Testament scholar Alan Ross notes, quote, It was now necessary to have a covenant with obligations for men and women and promises from God because people might begin to wonder whether God held life cheap or whether the taking of life was a small matter. It was not a small matter to God. And Peter reminds us that God's power to flood the earth points toward his fiery judgment to come. Even though life is sacred unto God, it does not mean there will not be a day where God will not judge. There will be a day where God holds all accountable for what we have done before him. Thankfully, however, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God sent Christ into the world to stand between us and his total judgment of all things. And what the Son did in coming and in going to the cross, he died for the very thing for which God should bring judgment upon all of us, our sins, our sinfulness before God. He becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Paul tells us. Jesus takes on the judgment, the wrath of God that should be given for our sin. And in place, he gives us his righteousness. Thankfully, we have the sign of the Lord's Supper, like the sign of the rainbow in the sky, to remind us of how great God's mercy in Christ is toward us. 
This is a sign within the community. Outside, we have the rainbow in the sky to tell everyone there is a God who will judge and who's withholding judgment and mercy now. Every weather event is a reminder of God's mercy for in every storm, the hands of the Almighty could destroy, but God is a God of mercy. Well, as the Lord would have it last Wednesday, as I passed by that man with the I'm hungry sign, I kept walking with my fists closed, sorry to say. But less than 10 paces away, there was another man holding up another sign that said, please help. Now I wanted to rush on and catch my train and grab my snack. But at this time, I'm getting some real conviction from the Holy Spirit. And my wife has just called me a few hours ago to say, you know, I went over to uh, our daughter's school. Our daughter is over at Concordia in River Forest. And I just signed on uh, for us to pay for her last semester. Now, when your wife tells you something like that, you don't want to be the one crying out to God for help and him saying, you didn't listen to that poor man. At that time, I want God to hear and say, God, now you are going to cover this bill, right? <laughs> you are going to take care of that. And so I stood out of the train seconds for 30 seconds, me and God going back and forth, and I said, no, Lord, I know that you want me to treat those people as persons. And so I took everything that I had in, in my wallet. I split it up, and I gave the first half to the first man with the first sign, and the second half to the second man with the second sign. I'm not trying to alleviate all of the problem of poverty in the city. I was just trying to be obedient in that moment. And I was trying to remember what it is like for me to stand before our God. God looks down at us and does not pass by us in our poverty before him. God doesn't pass by us in our hunger and our need before him. God looks down at we who bear his image and says, their lives are sacred unto me, sacred enough for me to give my only begotten son for them. And I will not pass all of them by, but I will provide for them the very thing for which they long for most, a way to be happy in my sight. And I'm just grateful that on that day God touched me and had me do something I was not intending to do so that I could be like him. All of life is sacred. Every person has dignity. That is how we sanctify life in a fallen world. Let's pray. And now, Father, be merciful to me, one undeserving of your love, your mercy, and your grace. Thank you that my life matters to you. Would you make every person's life matter to each one of us who know our Creator? Would you make it matter to each one of us who has been purchased by the blood of Christ? May the opportunities provided by the lack of dignity being given to so many be for the greater proclamation of the love of Christ.
through us to all the people in our lives. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.